0: Marketing wizards found them. Software engineers found that project manager I could never seem to hire, and found LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, eighty-six percent of small businesses get a qualified candidate within twenty-four hours. Post your first job for free and get started at LinkedIn.com/spoken. That's LinkedIn.com/spoken. Terms and conditions apply.
1: Coming up on this week's show: a one-of-a-kind ridge racer cabinet could be saved. The
2: best geeky Christmas jumper ever and we chat Might and Magic plus Medal of Honor with Tim Lang.
1: the retro hour podcast is brought to you each and every friday with our great friends at bitmap books now one of their best books they've brought out recently the games that weren't now this is years in the making the games That weren't reveals a story of more than 80 video games that were caught in production hell and ended up in gaming limbo so you can buy that right now and check out the rest of their retro gaming books on their website at bitmapbooks.com Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 354, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Rabbi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's show, the podcast that, of course, every Friday takes you on a nostalgic trip back to the golden age of video games. We bring you up to speed on all the big happenings in the world of retro from over the last week and, of course, in the second half of the show. This is where we really come into our own, and we bring you a veteran of the industry onto the show to tell you the story of their career and these incredible games that they worked on, and today we've got an amazing guest to tell you about. But I'm pretty shocked that we are now doing our final show of November. Not only does that mean we are literally weeks away from one of our biggest episodes of the year, the Retro Hour Annual Christmas Super Quiz. Oh, God. I'm particularly nervous because I'm actually a, a contestant on the quiz this year. Oh
2: God! God. I yeah, would not want to yeah, be the guy. I who's peddled with you, mate. That's <laughs> <are> you, mate. Enjoy <laughs> my. We won last
3: time. Oh, We've got a losing yeah, we, streak.
1: We, we... <laughs> <laughs> we won last time we were together, didn't we, Joe? I think.
3: Oh, we did. We no, did. This is better. true. So uh, good. I carried you around. Yeah, I'm yeah to of course. Get, <laughs>
2: I'm gonna have to get an expert on to to, to come in and uh, destroy you people. I'm gonna go for like a professional quiz person.
3: He's going to come on with, like, one of the guys from, um oh God, The Chase or something.
1: Yeah, Bradley Walsh. <laughs> the beast. I'm getting the beast on. <laughs> so uh, that is coming up in just a couple of weeks' time as we get into our festive programming, the best of the year as well. But of course, before that, there is something rather big that's happening right now. And uh, when this episode drops, we are literally right in the middle of our Kickstarter campaign for The Retro Hour book. And I've got to say, I mean, the first two weeks have absolutely blown me away. The amount of love, the amount of support, the amount of nice comments, the amount of people that seem genuinely as excited to get hold of this book as we are.
3: Yeah, man, it's been, (laughs) it's crazy kind of like waking up in the morning or, you know, like overnight or whatever, because obviously you've got listeners all around the world and people backing us from all around the world, just like with all the nice comments, like there's been so many people saying so many nice things and I feel a bit repetitive, like going on and on about it or just saying the same thank you, but I'm worried like people don't think it's sincere, if that makes sense, but it it really is. Like I wake up and it's just like, it's amazing to check it and kind of respond to everybody and. You know, I'm kind of doing my best on socials to say thank you to each and every person who kind of even just checks it out. You know, it says they checked it out or whatever, or gives it a thumbs up. But like it is, we're really, really, really blown away by it. And it's been, it's been a roller coaster. Like it's really, really thrilling, but it's really scary. Like I think we're 80, 83% of the way now with two weeks to go. Um, So we are
2: close.
1: I mean a kickstarter is it's all or nothing it isn't is, it. If it, we don't it, hit that 100%, yeah. it doesn't happen. Yeah. To yeah you know. like, everyone you know, gets some everyone doesn't get charged obviously. I'll just put that out there, you
2: know. It's like kind of, you know, interest in an idea, but when it gets funded it becomes real and that's absolutely yeah. awesome. I can't believe that we've got this far as well. Yeah. I I just, you know, really appreciate it. It's amazing like so far 429 backers, you know, that's yeah. uh, how many people are interested in getting this like hard back. But but what is it though, Dan? Yeah, because I mean,
1: that's the thing. We, we know that not everyone listens to every single episode. We get people jumping in, just because so they're really interested in that this week's guest, for example. So quickly, just to recap, we're doing a book that contains 10 of our favourite interviews from over 350 that we've done on this podcast. And the book is called The Retro Hour, The History of Video Gaming from Those That Made It Happen. Now, the thing is, we wanted to make this a real celebration of some of our favourite guests that we've had on the show. And it is going to be an absolutely gorgeous, full color premium hardback book, over 400 pages. And we were saying this a couple of weeks ago that, you know, obviously we've ran these podcasts on the show, but we're going to expand them with box-outs, extra information, commentary. There's going to be 10 features throughout the book as well. When we do get funded, which I'm pretty confident is going to happen, there's going to be a couple of stretch goals as well to get exclusive extra interviews and content in the book. And I'd say about, you know, maybe 40% of the book is going to be images too. So we've worked with an independent photographer we've hired to take images for the book. We've been checking out some of our favourite images online, working with people on Flickr, people who've documented shows, have been to these guest houses took pictures of the machines and we've licensed gorgeous images for the book as well and obviously the more that we raise on kickstarter the more that we can spend on licensing these beautiful images as well so in the book i mean we've got just some of our favorite guests and i mean it was hard Mm. to pick just 10 really wasn't it? out of 350 but give us some of the highlights of uh of these 10 people we've picked then
3: some of the highlights well let's see how quick i can do this then so we have got you know the uh, the granddaddy the grandfather of video games Nolan Bushnell in there which is just was episode one hundred absolutely massive episode yeah we've also got you know classic TV UK TV and games master host Dominic Diamond in there which is absolutely awesome uh, founder of Shiny Entertainment David Perry worked on Earthworm Jim Aladdin cool cool spot it was really cool hearing hearing all about those Disney games and stuff that he worked on the yak himself Jeff Minter of course you know huge in the UK huge around the world. One of my favorite interviews we've ever done. Trip Hawkins is going to be in there. Mm. We've been, you know, we've got, we've been talking with Trope. We've got some, you know, some cool images and stuff as well to go in there. Al Nelson, Sega marketing legend, you know, helped launch the Mega Drive, my favorite console of all time. Ken Williams, founder of Sierra Online, you know, gotta have Sierra in there, haven't you? Oh, too right. Um, Ed Smith, unsung black video game pioneer, which Ravi did a couple of years ago. Really, really, really interesting interview that was. Uh, of course, John Bird, which did give us a lot of her attention. Sega's former director of development technology, and he helped design the Dreamcast. That episode, quite a bit of media attention. Really, really, really well, Wasn't it the one. worst
1: video game bug ever? Yeah. Wasn't it? We, yeah. we that. Yeah, yeah that so was such
3: an incredible time. Getting that documented in the book. And then one of my favorite interviews of all time, maybe even my most favorite one that I've ever been on, maybe the funniest one I've ever been on. Wild Bill Steely, uh, who was the Microprose co-founder, who's just a really, really exciting, fun character in his interview. You know, hopefully we kind of captured that hilarity, you know, in the book as well. It was really,
2: really fun. I think it's going to be a good book for like anybody that wants to know about video game history, mm. but also uh, all the systems that are mentioned in this as well. You know, you've got like Jeff Minter in there. He talks about the conics multi-system for a bit. You know, <laughs> there's There's mm. not many books that are going to be covering that as well as the Dreamcast, as well as you know, Sierra Online and uh, just a variety in there as well. And we've also got this dust jacket coming on the way from David Rowe at the moment. Which should be
1: out by now, actually. There should be a glimpse of that night Kickstarter by the time this show comes out, hopefully. Hopefully, fingers Fingers crossed. crossed. Fingers crossed. crossed yeah so David Rowe you might know him he did all you know the dungeons on the TV show Nightmare back in the day and um, Populous he did the cover of that game James Pond with a bullfrog Cygnosis Melbourne House Firebird as well so honestly we want to make this book just something that we can be really proud of and that's something that is just going to look gorgeous on your shelf or your coffee table and will be a nice momentum that can live on forever you know this collection of these incredible interviews all together in one book and it has got a foreword from a retro gamer journalist and good friend of the show Mr Paul Drury and we've got loads of rewards as well for those who can uh, back a little bit extra money too. So if you want to check all of those out and uh, back the book, you know, we haven't got long left now. We've got only just two weeks left on this to make it happen. If you'd like to support it, of course, all the details and the link to the Kickstarter, you will find it on our website at theretrohour.com. And thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts to everyone who's helped us make this a reality so far. Let's do this. Right, coming up in a minute, we are going to be talking um, some of the big news stories this week, but also we have got an incredible guest as well, and uh, you guys did this one. I've got to say, I was literally on the edge of my seat listening to this interview, hanging off every word. What a guest we've got this week.
2: It, it was really interesting. So there's two Tim Langs in the world. There's uh, the graphics Tim Lang. We're not talking to him today. We're talking to the programming Tim Lang. and <laughs> He actually came from New World Computing, um, which is a really interesting company because they... They got took over by Free Do, the games company, just as they were kind of going into the uh, Might and Magic series um, from number six to number nine, and then later on, uh, you know, Tim tells us all about Medal of Honor as well, and the kind of you know we've not really covered Medal of Honor or the later FPSs and just the realism in that series, and you know, you see stuff like Call of Duty nowadays, you know, absolutely dominating and uh, back then I was a huge Medal of Honor fan so it's a really interesting interview and Might and Magic as well what a weird weird kind of RPG series that was I, I really loved it I had a lot of fun elements in that game.
3: Yeah it was it was a really fun interview and like you say it's really cool kind of hearing about his journey from going you know programming and designing levels and stuff like that for RPGs you know and kind of the whole kind of, you know, sword and sorcery world to then kind of get thrown into Medal of Honor and kind of, like, the things he had to go through, which I don't want to spoil, um, you know, which in some ways were really fun for him and really interesting to kind of, like, then work on such a huge shooter and, as you say, Medal of Honor kind of before Call of Duty was probably the dominant big, you know, FPS, like you say, in the late 90s, early 2000s, and it was really interesting to hear his story about working on them And then, you know, he kind of touches on then kind of like how Call of Duty kind of came from that,
1: which was really cool as well. Yeah, and I loved your your interview with him as well. I just think he, he had such fun doing it. Mm. You guys just all got on so well. It's such a giggle as well through it. So um, some really interesting stories with our special guest, Tim Lang. He'll be coming up on the show in around 25 minutes from now. But of course, before we do that, we bring you up to speed on what's been happening in the world of retro from over the last week. And thank you to everyone who shared this story with us. Loads of people put it in our Discord, our people tagging me on Twitter, sending me on Facebook as well. A beautiful story that actually comes from the uh, new Derby Computer Museum of a teenager who, like many of us did back in the day. I mean, I've got memories of getting my Amiga 500 Plus for Christmas 1991. You know, I love playing Lemmings, Captain Planet, The Simpsons, you know, sat down playing all those games. But one memory that really sticks in my mind is opening Deluxe Paint and trying to do computer art or animations i mean i was never very good at it Mm. but the fact that i could do it was always incredible but there's a kid here a guy called richard mcfarlane who sadly passed away when he was 17 years old back in 1991 and it turns out they've actually found some art that he made on his amiga back then and this has now been preserved
3: yeah so this this is really quite sweet so after he passed away his kind of computer and everything got put up in the loft and then over the years. You know, they, they they took it to some computer shops and stuff like that to try and sell. And essentially, the shops didn't want it. They said it wasn't worth it. It was an Amiga 500, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, I don't know what shops they were going to. Yeah, I, mean, I know. <laughs> but anyway, it's <laughs> a good <laughs> thing because it's a
3: very <laughs> sweet story. And essentially, when the museum announced that it was opening, the Derby Computer Museum in Charleston, pretty much, she, you know, his mum thought, you know, maybe they will want it. Maybe I'll donate it to them. And she didn't expect anything of it. And essentially, they contacted her recently um, and they'd managed to find, they'd got the computer up and running and found all the artwork um, that he had made and created, you know, in 1991. And they actually made an entire exhibit of part of the museum um, in its own, like, delegated room, haven't they? Yeah. And he invited his mum and his family to come and see it before the opening. Um, and apparently it was just, it was really emotional for them, which I, f- I think is really lovely that they did this. And then they also actually printed his work off um, and framed it and gave it to them, which I think, I, I mean, I'm welling up a little bit about it now, but I might be because I'm a dad now, um, but I can just imagine how emotional and how nice
2: of a gesture that is. It's 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 really nice how, like, you know, uh, someone's artwork can, like, live on and mm. just stay on that system and then be recovered, like, later you know after being in the loft i think if it had gone to a shop or something and just it got just sold it. yeah yeah it would have just got wiped or, or lost but um this this shows real care and effort by the museum and this is a brand new museum as well in derby um which is really cool we've got to pay a visit there uh you know just just being local just down the road we'll have to check it out but um i i'm really surprised by richard's artwork like he's yeah. he's really high high end you know um one of the demos on the TV was like dinosaurs and stuff um, at the beginning. And he's got a really awesome landscape here. And, uh, you know, he's done a lot better than I could ever do on D-Paint when I was younger. Um, yeah, some really impressive stuff. So um, I think this is great. And, uh, that you know, he's, he's living on through his art in this. Yeah, of course, we
1: had that famous story a couple of years ago um, that Andy Warhol's
2: yeah. artwork was recovered
1: from an Amiga as well and that was displayed in a museum so and and I'm looking here and you know when Richard passed away he's 17 years old when I got my Amiga I mean I used to try and do graphics and stuff when I was a, a kid and teenager and yeah he's done some here like you know the, the dinosaur and a volcano image all I could do in deluxe paint was like stick men yeah but these graphics he did are like yeah they're in gorgeous full color Beautiful detail in them too. There's like an out-of-space image. It looks incredible as well. So the fact that now you can walk into this museum in Derby and actually check out an exhibition from Richard McFarlane, who passed away in 1991. His family can walk in and see it at any time. And they're running on his original Amiga as well, I just think is really beautiful. And, as and I it. love, so,
2: there's there's a gallery of his pictures here and there's this geometric kind of um, images. Do, do you remember that? There was a special mode that you could go on deluxe paint and you could draw like... Uh, in geometry and do these weird patterns and stuff like that. He's done yeah. them much better than I did. I, I would just go crazy with it. But um, yeah, that, that kind of takes me back to those deluxe paint days as well.
1: Yeah, so we're going to check out those images and uh, we'll put a link to the new Derby Computer Museum, you'll find all that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, this next one is a bit of a long story, um, but I'm going to try and condense this because this actually – Resonated quite a lot with me. You know, I've talked about on the podcast before that Ridge Racer is, if not my all-time favourite arcade racing game, it is definitely up there in my, you know, top Mm. two or three. And I've got memories of playing it when I was about like 13, 14 at my local bowling alley. Yeah. And the one I remember is, it was actually the Ridge Racer full scale. Right. So we we had like a, a, it was a car you sat in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, there was a massive... Rear projection screen in front of you. Yeah, they had speakers around it. There's even fans. I remember they kind of made you know wind when you were driving. How much ago was that? <laughs> being... Well, that would have been about oh, yeah. I think it was about two pounds to play on in 1994 95. Okay, so that was quite a lot, you know, for an arcade game back then. Um, and it was weeks It was um a place called a Teesside Park that's still there now in Middlesbrough when it just opened actually. And there's like a bowling alley there. There's a you know. Big cinema screens and stuff there too. But they did have a really cool little arcade bit. I remember playing um, Virtua Fighter and stuff there for the first time. But this ridge racing machine, the fact that it was actually a real car, that to me was like, you know, the first time I'd ever experienced anything like that. I mean, I, I kind of played the Outrun ones, you know, that kind of, you know, simulate a car a bit, but nothing like this. This is actually a, a real Mazda MX5 that they just kind of, you know, stripped all the car bits out of and actually made it into a, a controller for the game. So that was very cool. And it turns out that, I mean, there's a full story in um, this blog on rkblogger.com. that kind of talks about this um, Ridge Racer cabinet. And it turns out that the the reckon there's only one surviving example wow. in the world now. But there was quite a lot of these back in the day. But the fact that they were so difficult to install yeah. means that none of them have really survived. I
2: also guess that the size of it being full scale, it's probably taken yeah. up the room for like seven arcade machines yeah so well arcades probably just went right it, it's out of date let's get rid of it and fill it up with you know money-making machines
3: well well interesting you should say that so when i was reading this article i i, I mean either i didn't know or i'd completely forgot about the full scale one for me it was always either the stand-up ridge racer or the one with the free crt screens yeah you know yeah. And that's big enough <laughs> you know the free crt screen one but like you say, Ravi, it, it it refers to it as a cabinet the whole way through it, but it's more like a ride. You know, it's like it's like an experience. It's like a garage. You uh, basically got the car in the middle, and then yeah, it's got a full surround around and, it. And, and, and like yeah. you say, it it turns out reading this article, you know, as you say, it takes up like so much space. Is it costs two hundred and fifty thousand pounds to buy the cabinet, and um, what yeah. would happen is Namco would come, and they wouldn't just send you the cabinet. They'd send you like the car and the kit and everything, but they would actually come over to you and they would, they would figure out, they would have the space and they would figure out how to build the cabinet into the space. So it was specifically built for all the space that you, that you had. So they're all different. So they're all different, yeah. which is really interesting. So the game, the screen and the car are all the same, but the actual kind of like housing to it, if that makes sense, is different um, for everybody. And, and as, as you know, Ravi says, it's taken up so much room and it was made in 1993. So I guess by the late 90s early 2000s it would be quite a
2: dated game and it's taken up a lot of room. Imagine the lift that you'd need. Like a yeah. lift that you'd have to drive a car in. To, yeah, an actual car. Yeah, it's an, actual car. It yeah, it's
3: an yeah. actual car, yeah. So yeah, they they think there's one left in the world which was at Blackpool Pleasure
2: Beach. Pleasure Beach is actually a theme park, which I am su- mm. which I've not been to since I was about uh, 10 I years old. I used to spend a lot of time at Pleasure Beach and if there's anything that's broken down our old i from it it will be at the Pleasure Beach <laughs> yeah still going you,
1: know? you probably saw this yeah cuz i mean it looks like it was running from about 94 95 and actually only shut down back in around 2017
3: 2018 yeah so um I, 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 I maybe in the depths of my brain because my family are from Blackpool and i went to Pleasure Beach a lot it was there but yeah in 2017 um they closed it off but they actually funny enough Ravi you would love this you should go look look for this picture they actually just put arcade machines in front of it, like to oh, close yeah. it, because they <laughs> it couldn't it off. to block it off because they couldn't really like remove it. Um, but this is where the story gets a bit a bit crazy. So there's a kind of a lot of like posts and articles about it, and sometimes is it true? Does it kind of match up? But the National Video Game Museum allegedly offered to take it away from them and put it in the museum, and they kind of have to do a few a few official statements around it because of. They pretty much, it turned out, they never actually took it, did they? They
2: never actually... They figured it was, it was more effort than it's worth.
3: To
1: yeah. No, they wanted it. They wanted it, but apparently a private collector beat them yeah. to it, which is it's kind of where the story goes weird, isn't it? Yeah. Because this guy got it, and then he just kind of Left it in. abandoned <laughs> it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Living room. Also.
3: No, it's worse than that, unfortunately. So they dismantled it, took it away from Pleasure Beach, and then screenshots of it appeared online of the car... And the, sc- and the screen and and some of like, you know, the kind of like the, the, the PCB boards and stuff in his garage. But then the actual structure of, you know, the Ridge Racer full scale, like, you know, uh, you know, like, like all the structures and artwork and the stuff just got left in the garden under tarpaulin and wasn't like tied down. So it all went rusty and, you know, it was just kind of left to the British elements and then it turned out the garage had a really bad leak in it as well, and it leaked all over the PCB boards and completely destroyed them. So there was a bit of an outcry because of everybody thinks this, as far as we know, this is the last known one in the world. But then somebody, an anonymous source, has now appeared online in recent months and said they have bought the house off the person who had it <laughs> and he'd left it in the garage. He got rid of all the, the marquee and the structure. That's all gone. That's how that's... House comes with Ridge Racer full but the scale. House yeah. has come with Ridge Racer full scale in the garage. Now, some people are saying it's just the guy trying to cover his tracks and he's just, you know, that's why he's posting anonymously and it could be the same guy. It's all speculation, stuff like that. But apparently he's managed to recover it. And now this is where Dan, you might have to help me. I'm not too sure who it's with now, but it's now been donated. And essentially, they've managed to restore it. The car is okay. The PCB boards are destroyed, but they're using emulation. They've managed to emulate. Somebody's been working on, it and they're emulating the game to work on the screen. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So apparently, they already had like kind of quite a bit of it working mm. in emulation. Um, but there was about I think there was eight chips that hadn't been emulated on there. But now they managed to get most of it up and running again. Yeah. And they reckon that you know between kind of remaining examples of different ones, and you know there might be like a bit of the the kind of structure left over from another one. But basically, I reckon between them, they might have enough now to actually have a fully restored one up and working at some point.
2: Right. Well, hopefully really the, um, it will go to a place that's not going to go bust and then hide it again for another <laughs> load of years. You know, um hopefully it'll be in a place where it's quite permanent, which which is good because I can imagine it's such a faff to get it in there.
1: Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, it would be great. I mean, I'm not sure. Again, I mean, you can read this blog and it's very, very long, isn't it? And it goes into much more detail than we've got time to talk about on the show. But yeah, I mean, the the National Video Game Museum, were interested, kind of their involvement right now. I'm not really sure. It's, you know, depends on which source that you read, but it would be great if, you know, maybe they can work with these people who've now finally got their hands on it all and are working on restoring it and eventually get it displayed in there. I think that will be incredible so everyone can come and have a go on it again. I mean, I've just got, I mean, such vivid memories of playing on that as a teenager and just being blown away, but I'd love to experience it again. Dan, you need it in your garage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I I would build another garage just for this. So, uh, yeah, it does look incredible. So if you want to see that, I mean, obviously, um, I'm sure there's going to be more news about that over the next year or two, but it looks like it's in the uh, the hands of the correct people now. So I'll put a link to that blog in our show notes at theretrohour.com. A bit of an update on the Streets of Rage movie. Now, we did talk about this probably about a year ago, didn't we? um, The uh, Streets of Rage movie looks like it's in the works from uh, John Wick creator Derek Kolstad, who's apparently working on this movie. Apparently, there's been a bit of a script written from what we heard. And uh, it looks like now, though, that actually a big company have picked it up. And there are some uh, people with some big pedigree in turning video games into movies behind it now.
3: Yeah, so it was. I'm sure it was within the last year at least. Um, we were talking about this, that this was in the works, but essentially, it's looking as though the Streets of Age movie is going to happen. So, um, Alliance Gate have picked it up, haven't they? Um, yeah. massive distributor, massive distributor. They've picked up the rights to it. Um, and because of that, a few more people have got on board with the project. Um, so Colstad's going to be joined by. Ryan Excuse Reynolds. Me, by Ryan Reynolds.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, it's not Ryan Reynolds. It's, um, Chris Pratt. <laughs> not Chris Pratt either. Maybe. Uh, okay. <laughs> to Well, we don't know who's in it. We yet, don't it know who's be, yeah. in it yet. Um, but Toru Nakahara, um, who previously worked and produced the last the, the two, I say the last two, the only two Sonic movies. Um so he's involved with it. And then also a company called DJ Two. Uh, which are a com- company that specialise in adapting gaming properties for the cinema, who also worked uh, with the Sonic team, you know, to make the Sonic films. Um, so it looks like it is going to happen and it's picking up traction. Um, no kind of like release date or like, um, you know, if Ryan Reynolds or Chris Pratt are going to be in it, but I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> <I should> say, <laughs> um, But yeah, it looks as though it is probably going to happen because I think like you said, Dan, last we heard there was a script flying around. Yeah. Now we've actually got a distributor, and we've got companies involved in making it happen. Um, you know, and Sega involved as Sega, well. which Yeah, is like, Sega you know. involved, obviously. So, I don't know how I feel about it. Um, I mean, I'm thinking it's got to be like quite a serious kind of martial arts street fight, street fight kind of film for yeah, me. I don't they want could it to be go
2: Cobra Kai. They
1: could,
3: nice. go co- they could go Cobra Kai.
1: Well, there is. Interestingly, if you look, on, I'll, I'll put this link in our show notes as well. There's a, a website called WeGotThisCovered.com, and they're actually talking about who they reckon would be the perfect actors to play the roles in Streets of Rage. And actually, um, they reckon the role of Axel Stone, William Zebka, who plays Johnny Lawrence in Karate Kid and Cobra Kai, would be a good choice for that. I mean, actually, he does look quite like him, I he, think. He, he's got that, definitely the
3: look of it. He's definitely got the look of it, but it depends where they want to go with it. If they want to do it as if, like, because William was like, maybe 57, something like that. Which, as you we were saying before, Axel Stone would be about that he age He would be about that you know, age. So, today. if they were doing it as, like, uh, it's it's set in 2022, 23, or whatever, and it is, like, the Streets of Age characters from the games in the 90s, then that would be the right age for them. Mm. Um, but funny you should say that. If they're gonna go ahead and do it, like, when they were young, the person who plays his son, in Cobra Kai yeah. I think he would make a good ax yeah, yeah. come he to would think actually, of yeah. it um, so
2: but yeah I wouldn't be surprised if it was Ryan Reynolds and Chris Pratt <laughs> you need Brian Blessed as one of the bosses that would be good oh yeah that would be good <laughs>
1: I love this article as well on their uh, trueachievements.com and they're talking about, you know, the, the hope, the fact that the game's going to feature um, them kind of running down the street, punching loads of people that look, look exactly the same and eating stuff that they find in a bin. Will, it, will awesome. it have
2: uh, leather-clad ladies with whips? Um, I hope so. <laughs> it's not,
1: not Streets of Rage otherwise, <laughs> no. is it?
2: Come on. So, uh, yeah,
1: very cool. I mean, it just seems like, you know, um, obviously with the, you know, the new Mortal Kombat movie as well, hopefully not too far away now, the the second instalment of that, it does kind of feel like um, games coming to the big screen. It's finally been done right. We haven't seen any Willie Neff ones for a couple of years. They're, is they're, they're probably, yeah, <laughs> so they're just saving them they just don't all give as much attention. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we just swerved them. So uh, <laughs> and we've got some big news actually about something that's going to be coming back to the small screen in just a minute to tell you about. And uh, probably the coolest ugly Christmas jumper you will see this year. Before we do that, though, just a quick shout that obviously it is a final weekend of the month. And you know what that means. Sunday night is a big one. Our favourite Sunday of the month. It is patrons hangout time. <laughs> Anyone? You <laughs> know i was scrambling i was like
3: is it the last sunday of the month it bloody is it is it is yeah. it is this it's this sunday coming gosh better tell the missus this month has gone quick I, but, I better tell the missus that the uh, credit card's gonna get hammered <laughs> while i'm online with the boys now always super excited i'm, I'm unfortunately i missed uh the last one because i was at work i've got a new job i do have to do some East night slacker. shifts with it and it was not on the night shifts but they have promised me last sundays of the month they know that i do the uh the patron hangout and that that comes first moving forward Uh, so i will be there on this one so super super excited to hang out with everybody and say hello to everybody because for me it has been two months and you guys even said that the last one was probably one of the best ones we ever did and the busiest one you've
2: ever did (laughs)
1: like they must have known i wasn't going to be there i I didn't want to mention that that correlation joe i'm I'm sure it was just coincidence I'm, i'm really
2: glad we do it on a sunday because then it can be like a A hungover hangout for me as well. (laughs) (laughs) Are you out on Saturday night? Oh, yeah, cousin's birthday. So that's going to be fun.
1: Bit of hair of the dog, Ravi. You'll be fine. It's new <laughs> Christmas. Um, so we're doing that on Sunday night. If you haven't joined us for one before, it's so much fun. Load of us get together. We just completely nerd out. You know, we chat about our pickups. We do room tours, show off our gaming stuff. Uh, we give advice as well. You know, we have loads of times on there, people have asked for, you know, tips on software installations, you know, restoring old hardware. Just a bit of a geek out for a couple of hours. Really informal, if you'd like to join us for that. It's coming up on Sunday night. All you've got to do is they're back us on Patreon. All Patreon tiers are welcome to that. And also this weekend, we will be recording our next episode of our patrons exclusive podcast, the retro hour after hours. Now on the current episode, you can check out and uh, I think you unlock almost 30 back episodes if you join us online wow. now. We've done a load of them and that was, um, we go through our favourite video game add-ons. So we're talking about peripherals, you know, mega CDs and all that kind of thing. So um, about an hour, hour and a half episode. So if you want to check that out, loads of other perks as well for joining us on Patreon. But of course, the main reason you're doing it is just to make sure that we can keep the lights on and keep bringing this podcast to you each and every week. All the details to join us and uh, get an invite to this weekend's hangout are at theretrohour.com. So our special guest, Tim Lang, talking about Might and Magic and Medal of Honor in just a minute. Before that, though, it turns out the next year, Games Master is coming back again.
2: Yeah, I'm, I really enjoyed the comeback. I thought, it's interesting. I've seen some press about it that's been like, it was awful and it got cancelled and all of this stuff. But I thought it went down quite well. Um, I liked it. Yeah, the Games Master. So
1: this was last year. I mean, for those outside the UK, Games Master, I'm sure you've heard us talking about it. Huge, an institution of British gaming back in the early 90s. Uh, to the late 90s, ran for about eight years, I think. Um, you can watch them all on on YouTube if you're interested. Had a break for about 20 odd years and finally made a comeback last year with just three episodes. Completely different cast on there as well, but I think it did have a lot of that kind of Games Master attitude and legacy. And it did feel like what Games Master would have turned into, I think. Yeah, it definitely yeah. had that kind it's of DNA. It's always been there.
2: about like kind of participating and watching people play and having challenges and playing against yeah. each other. And a lot of the challenges seem to go onto like modern titles but a lot of them weren't that modern you had like splatoon in there and stuff um but it, it was fun they had a bit of stuff about history of gaming as well and legacy
1: and i thought you know the style of the show reminded me of the original games master 2 so you know I, th- I think they definitely had all that right you know rab florence who was a host of it i thought he did a really good job as being like you know a dominic diamond and it, replacement. And it was very much
2: a test wasn't it It was very much a pilot yeah. and then put kind of putting their toes in the water and going like, is this going to flow? How's, that, how's it going to go down with people? And to be honest, I saw there was mixed reactions. You know, a lot of people wanted it to be more retro and stuff like that. I get that. But um, yeah, it's interesting to see what that it's kind of been commissioned again. And I guess they're going to extend it, probably have more episodes than three.
1: Yeah, I mean, they did those three and apparently it reached um, 152 million views, which, you know, for three episodes is really good. Um, we obviously had a uh, Trevor McDonald. No, who uh, took 152 over.
2: total impressions, which is very different uh, to uh, across
1: social media as well. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Which is very different to 150 million views because <laughs> I don't think anything on mainstream television gets that these days. And interestingly, they actually put it out on um, YouTube. As well, I was going to say it yeah. was mostly
1: on YouTube, wasn't yeah. it? It
2: was on there first before it was on TV.
1: Um, and Trevor McDonald played the games master. I thought he did a great job. But now they're saying that um, yes, it looks like it was it was a success enough to be kind of commissioned for a new series of it, hopefully with more episodes. Although this time they're saying that are going to make some changes. Now this is a bit that I've got a feeling people of our generation who enjoyed the last one who kind of wanted a bit of that kind of legacy in there as well. We might get a bit nervous at this. Now, they're saying that they want to take things even further with this. And this time, they don't appeal to the nostalgic fans of it, but they want to really aim this at a younger audience and people are totally unaware of the original series. So what they want to do is um, make this something that appeals to the gaming ecosystem on Channel 4 social platforms, and it means they're actually going to um, unapologetically aim this at a young social first audience i
2: could yeah i can imagine that that's happening with everything you know what i mean Mm. um but i i I can imagine they'll do it all right it's it's not going to be like totally abandoning its roots because uh that 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 would be you know that wouldn't go down well with anyone i think i think they'll still have the roots the style of it and stuff but um yeah aim it for that new audience because uh as long as they're not selling NFTs and doing stuff like that, you know, uh, I'll, I'll be down with it. Yeah, I quite enjoyed the one. I thought Rab was a really good host um, to have on the show. I hope hope he's back, and uh, Frankie Waterlight and Ty as well. Ty did seem very aimed at the young audience though, and uh,
1: and Trent McDonnell I thought was great. He, he, obviously, Patrick ah, a away game that, a lot of yeah, against yeah. yeah. So I think, you know, from what I I really enjoyed those episodes and I thought that had the right balance of appearing, you know, appealing to original fans and new ones as well. Um, So it would be nice if they they did just kind of keep that format going with the same people. I think it would work for a full series, but yeah, I don't understand the
2: use of today. So maybe there's something that they can do that will appeal to to both groups. But uh, that's very hard to try and get something that's going to appeal to kids as well as middle age and people say, yeah, we'll see, we'll see. I think see. they got the balance how, right. How I think right. they got it
1: right because my, my little nephew, is 10, he loved it. Did he love he it? watched yeah. that with his dad. Yeah, him okay. and his dad watched it together. They both loved it. So it kind of felt like they straddled that kind of old school, new school thing
2: quite well. And you though. weren't forcing him to watch it. <laughs> no, you'll love it. this easy, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> Match sticks in his eyes yeah. <laughs> uh, you know
1: <laughs> rope around him so you can get up off the seat
2: uh,
1: but no it's um, So I, I'm hoping they kind of just continue with what they did last time and don't make too many changes yeah. well I guess
2: off. you know the good thing is that they're actually considering games output and I don't think yeah. they've considered games output on mainstream television or, or any of the channels have for a long time and it's such a big industry they need to address it and need to get involved so if they can do it through a bit of nostalgia and then you know increase that kind of output and get into that games area i think it's a good place to go
1: you know it's funny isn't it because back in the day it felt like you know having games coverage on tv made kind of gaming relevant now it feels like the other way around doesn't it like gaming's making television relevant totally yeah totally
2: swapped yeah like let's get on this gaming vibe (laughs) okay could bring more people back to the old format
1: (laughs) yeah so we'll keep an eye on that as we hear more apparently it's going to be coming back next year have you guys got a Christmas jumper ready for uh, your uh, your Christmas bash this year? You having a Christmas party? I oh, work from home now. I don't think I'm. My, one. my my new Just work
3: me. have a Christmas party, and uh, we're having it at like a really posh venue. And it literally says if you wear if you don't wear smart trousers or a suit, you'll be you'll be uh, turned away. So maybe if I turn up in this garish jumper that you found for us, Dan, um, they might let me in. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I've got to admit, I do love my. Naff Christmas jumpers. Oh god, yeah. And Microsoft have actually been releasing a few of them over the last few years. I don't know if you saw this. They did um, a couple of years back. They did a pattern with the Windows logo, kind of Windows three point one and MS Paint logos on there as well. Um, last year it was Minesweeper that they put on a, a I've seen, jumper. I've seen the
2: teletext one. That was pretty cool. Yes, yeah.
1: I've seen that on my Facebook feed coming up as well. Now there are a lot of these kind of things around these days, but this one, Microsoft this year, have released an official Clippy Christmas jumper. Now you remember Clippy? Or Clipit,
2: as he was known.
1: Clipit was actually his real name, but for some reason everyone calls him Clippy. Sure I, I
2: remember him and I hate him. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was it was when they introduced this kind of tooltip kind of thing and you know it came in different forms they had a uh william shakespeare as well uh they had a power pup which was another one uh office logo that you could talk to and it was just basically an annoying assistant so it was designed not for pro pro office users like us it was designed for for new users and he'd pop up and uh be really annoying and there's a reason why we don't have clippy anymore <laughs> in this well actually do you know
1: that clippy Survives in Windows 11. I was
2: going to say he's in Windows 11, isn't he? Is is he the the assistant? I'm a Mac user, so I've I've escaped. (laughs) I've escaped Clippy. I didn't realize this, but I have got a Windows 11 machine in
1: my house, and I tried this. And if you um, so if you open the emoji keyboard on Windows 11, and you search for the paperclip emoji. It is actually Clippy. Oh,
2: okay. So he's not just going to pop up and be like, activate your windows. (laughs) Hey, it looks like you're writing a letter.
1: Um, No, he's not doing that anymore. But um, yeah, so basically this is a pretty hideous Christmas jumper, but I love the design of it with Clippy there in the middle going, happy holidays. And there's the the okay button that you'd always click to dismiss him. And there's a a pile of papers in the background, kind of owing to his Microsoft Office legacy in there too. And apparently this is a proper... Knitted Christmas jumper. Because you know a lot of these you see are just kind of sweatshirts with it kind of printed on. Yeah. But no, this is actually a proper wool knitted jumper with with your old mate Clippy on there. I
3: hope so. It, it, I, I hope so at $75.
1: <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, what they're gonna do is Microsoft are donating a hundred thousand dollars of the sales to the hmm. College Success Foundation, saying that they're giving a lot of the money to charity. But you joke there that this costs $75 and that's expensive. You click through to the site, and actually, it is hosted on um, the Xbox Gear Store. And it looks like every single size of it is already completely sold out. Oh, wow. Because you bought them all, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I did. I think anyone that works in IT. You know, if you go to your IT Christmas party wearing one of these.
2: There's going to be system admins everywhere wearing these at office parties. Just turning up with Clippy, like, yeah, just to look cool. Just wear it for the whole (laughs) month of December. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah,
1: it does look pretty cosy, I've got to say. So, um, yeah, it's nice to see Microsoft kind of having a bit of, you know, tongue in cheek, a bit of a giggle with their their legacy there as well. So um, they even call it a Windows ugly sweater. You know what they need next? They need,
2: like, safe to shut down. Um, yeah. <laughs> on, a, on a t-shirt or something
1: well it looks like they are doing these every year it's a bit of an annual tradition now and um there is a little uh, stock alert button on their website if you want to get alerted to um if any more come in stock before christmas so i'll put that and everything else we talk about you'll find them all in our show notes on your podcast app or at theretrohour.com now, this week's special guest, Tim Lang, is on the show in just a minute. Before we do that, let's take a quick moment to give a massive thank you to this week's sponsor, and that is our incredible friends at ExpressVPN, Longtime supporters of the Retro Hour podcast, and you've probably heard us talk before about how important it is. And I think, you know, in the time that we've had ExpressVPN sponsor our show, it seems like it is increasingly more important to have a VPN to protect your online privacy.
2: Yeah, totally. There's so many different networks out there. I recently went to America, and I couldn't get my uh, card to work at all on the mobile phone network. So I was relying on uh, these Wi-Fi networks I never connected to before at hotels, at airports, oh, all over the place. And uh, that's always scary. Yeah, very scary. <laughs> and straight away, I had my laptop set so it would connect to ExpressVPN, and that was really awesome. And I really trust ExpressVPN; it doesn't log any of your Activity, so um, it doesn't store anything. It's incapable of storing your data at all.
1: And one thing about ExpressVPN, I mean, you've been a long-term user of it as well, even before they sponsored our show. And they've got a thing called M Lightway, which is a VPN protocol that makes your speeds faster than ever. Because I mean, I'd use like free VPNs on that before, and you know, I couldn't play HD video, even normal video, would stutter on some of the free VPNs. But ExpressVPN. Super fast, isn't it?
2: Yeah, and uh, you're really risky using those free VPNs as well, actually. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it runs really well. And if if you're streaming you know, stuff from Netflix on another country or another location, you, you really want that HD quality.
1: Yeah, no buffering or anything like that. And uh, dead simple to use. I know we've got it on our laptops. I've got it on my smart TV as well. Honestly, it's literally one tap of a button. And you're connected as well. Even your grandparents could use this. So, And it's not just us who love ExpressVPN. Business Insider, The Verge, many of the tech journals as well, they write ExpressVPN, the number one VPN in the world. So protect yourself with a VPN that we use and trust. And actually, if you use our exclusive link, we will give you three months of ExpressVPN for free on top of a one year package. So head to this link right now and support the podcast by doing so expressvpn.com slash retro. Do that today, expressvpn.com slash retro. And a big thank you to our friends at ExpressVPN for their continued support of our show. So quick reminder, less than two weeks to go. If you want to back the podcast book, uh, the Retro Hour book that is now running on Kickstarter, we need to make this. It's all or nothing by, I think, December 10th it finishes. So, we, honestly, we appreciate all your support so far. If you'd like to hold it in your hand, I've been fantasising about this, Joe. Holding the book in my hand, how it's going to feel, because, you, you know, we've, we've gone all out on this paper quality and everything, haven't we? We've you you texted me the other
3: night it. saying how you've been fantasising about holding it, and I've just got images of you, like, cuddling it in bed. <laughs> i rolling and, around with and, it
1: and sniffing the book
3: sniffing i the smell it. of the fresh new, L- the Pinnacles. new oh. the new smell of it but yeah man yeah. like uh, massive massive thank you and we and we 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 see the names we know so many of our sales have been our patrons as well and we yeah. massively appreciate the uh the the ongoing support you guys are really 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 making it happen for us which is just amazing
1: Yeah, so everyone that's backed it so far, we cannot thank you enough from the bottom of our heart. We've got two weeks to make this happen. If you'd like to have the Retro Hour book in your hand and be able to hold it and sniff the pages like me, uh, please join us on that, Kickstarter right now, all the details, and have a look at the book as well. Check out the new dust cover. Hopefully we've got some images of that to show you by now. Check out all the amazing rewards. Get an exclusive episode of the podcast on an audio cassette tape, that is one of them. T-shirts, we've got all of that as well. You can check it out. And they're supported on Kickstarter. All the details are at theretrohour.com. Right, then, this week's special guest, Talking Might and Magic and Medal of Honor, Tim Lang is next on the Retro Hour Podcast.
3: If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores, like Bloomingdale's, levi's and zappos and even stack sales on top of cash back it's easy to use and you get cash back through paypal or check the idea is simple stores pay rakuten for sending them shoppers and rakuten shares the money with you as cash back download the free rakuten app and never miss a deal or go to rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck that's r-a-k-u-t-e-n
0: passes from £89. Book yours now at London.com.
2: You're listening to The Retro Hour and we're here today with Tim Lang and uh, Tim's going to be telling us all about New World Computing, about the series Might and Magic and also Medal of Honour. How are you doing Tim? I'm good, how are you? Great. Um, we always start our podcast with one question and that was what was your first gaming experience or your first memory of really playing a video game?
4: Um, so I'm not sure if, uh, if it particularly counts, but I remember being uh, four or five, something around there, and um, my parents had a Coleco Telestar in their bedroom. And I snuck in there and, <laughs> uh, and I played Pong and uh, it had a light gun uh, played some shooting games. I don't remember being very good at it, uh, so that's probably my very first gaming experience.
3: Did they uh, did they catch you, or was that something that you did a lot, sneaking into play, or was it <laughs> one time thing? <laughs> uh,
4: it was well. Um, I don't remember being caught, but I do remember doing it doing it kind of a lot. And yeah. then, uh, you know, a few years later, uh, my dad brought home an television. Uh, like out of the blue, and it wasn't like Christmas, it wasn't anybody's birthday. It just he showed up, he's like, "Hey, here's an Intellivision." Yeah. Um, I don't think he was particularly popular with my mom after that. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know that's what that's what really kicked off the gaming. I spent a lot of time on the Intellivision. Yeah. And then you know moved on to the Commodore 64 as a teenager.
3: Oh, awesome! So uh, our next question usually is: Is what was your kind of like first home system or computer that you really sunk your teeth into? Um, so would that be the c64 Did you have much experience programming on it
4: well i wouldn't I, I wouldn't say much I mean mm. I did a lot of programming on it, but uh, I never finished anything mm. uh, you know I, it was mostly like learning to do text adventure type games because they were easy to write and and messing around with uh, the programs that came in the back of magazines and things like that. Uh, I did spend a lot of time with uh, game creation tools mm. uh, like uh, adventure construction set was one where you kind of oh could, yeah you could make your own rpg and uh, there's another one gary kitchen's game maker um, and i spent a lot of time with those but just like just like programming my uh zork clones i never finished anything <laughs>
2: <laughs> well yeah i i remember uh gary kitchen's game maker as well um didn't he do
4: pitfall uh, that was a game that was included with the game maker. I'm not sure if he was actually responsible for creating Pitfall in the beginning. He could be. I just, you know, I just don't know.
2: Um, I, w- I was, wondering then. Did you have any like history of D and D at all? Or oh yeah, or kind of getting into the RPG genre? Like we've had a lot of developers on that always tell us, you know, they, they were really into D and D.
4: Yeah, I mean, I was, uh, I played a lot of it with uh, with my brother hmm. uh, growing up and occasionally i'd play with with uh like school friends but mostly with my brother my school friends were all into the ad and d and i only did uh the basic edition mm-hmm. at the time i never learned uh and that went through probably till i was 14 or 15 and then it stopped until i was oh uh, like 25 and some friends of mine were like hey you used to play let's uh, we're starting a campaign and and then we dove into it pretty hard after that f- for a long time. So, you
3: kind of started your career with New World. How, yeah. how? What's the story there? How did you get the job with New World? You know, what was the interview process like?
4: Yeah. So, it, uh, at the time, I was working at an answering service. I uh-huh. had a bright pink mohawk. Nice. And and <laughs> I had a, I had a an old van or a. a that I had a car that, that wasn't exactly working and I needed to find a job that paid better than the answering service. Mm. And, and I had a friend who worked at, uh, at new world mm-hmm. and I was only kind of vaguely aware of who they were. You know, I knew a couple of, a couple of my other friends had been worked in there or work, you know, came and went and stuff like that. And so I just, I just went and put in an application, just like a regular, like if you were applying for a job at a grocery store or a, a fast food or something. You know, you just yeah, write, put in, write, uh, you know, all the things on the paper. No resume, no experience, just and and hand it in. And they called me in for an interview, and mm. uh, I had this pink mohawk. And I said, that's, that's probably not going to cut it. So I, I wore a hat to the interview, which,
3: <laughs> you know, know worse.
4: <laughs> yeah, it, it's a big no, no, but, but I was like, I figured that, that that would be considered better than the mohawk. Yeah. And, and I was interviewed by two of the, I guess, lead testers. Mm. They didn't like officially have that title or anything. They were just, uh, you know, the two guys that interviewed me and we, yeah. we just sat there and we talked about, Commodore games. We talked about uh, old PC games. We talked about, you know, my experience with RPGs and D&D and, and that was it. <laughs> you know, they, they, I told them when I was a kid, when I was on playing with a Commodore 64, I used to get the EA newsletter and the newsletter always had these like back page stories that would talk about the wacky hijinks that they'd get into while they were in the office you know like shooting nerf guns at each other and stuff yeah it's like that's a fun place to work one day i want to work at ea and i told them that and they said well you know new world is owned by 3do now so it's kind of like working for ea and (laughs) i mean eventually i did actually work for ea
2: so it's an interesting time when you started then um what year was it Um
4: uh it was i think 1996
2: so, so nineteen ninety six. So they've been going since eighty six as well. So yeah. were you aware of like all their previous titles? You know, and, I uh, wasn't.
4: Series? I had n- I had never heard of Might and Magic hmm. until I sat down in that interview. Yeah, love it. Might and Magic, best, and best up, game ever.
2: <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>.
4: <laughs> like, oh yeah, I loved it. No, I you know I coped to it. I said, you know, I never played it, but hmm. you know, I I did play a lot of Bard's Tale. Uh, That was one of my favorite games and Might magic, the uh, like Might magic one and Bard's Tale are very similar in like perspective and kind of gaming styles. So a lot of that kind of carried over, I think, with in their opinions of me, Mm. Uh, because they you know, they didn't I had to actually call back to get the job (laughs) like nobody called me. I called back like uh, a week later or something and called the the testing uh, manager and he's like, yeah, you got the job. When can you start tomorrow? You want to start tomorrow? (laughs)
3: <laughs> oh, wow. Maybe they were just waiting for somebody to go back.
4: <laughs> yeah, right? right? The funny thing is, though, that, that uh, you know, the guy who, who I replaced, mm. he left the company with, uh, I think, another tester mm. uh, to go follow around Grateful Dead. Oh, wow. All, all over the country. And I was like, oh, great. So I got my job. You know, I got a job because he left. And then, uh, like, a few months later, Jerry Garcia died and mm. the Grateful Dead stopped touring. <laughs> so, like, I never met him, kind of feel bad for him that, that he quit yeah. a, a job making video games to do that, but, you know. <laughs> that's what,
2: the, I, I guess a lot of people kind of quit jobs to go yeah, the Grateful yeah, that's Dead. that's true. <laughs>
4: okay. And particularly um, in the game world, there's a lot of kind of flighty people like that, mm-hmm. or at least in when you're a tester.
2: Yeah, I can imagine, yeah. Like, um, before, they were a developer and a publisher as well, so they were also... Yeah. Um, just publishing other people's games as well by the time you joined it kind of started to shift into being a developer and a publisher yep uh totally as one uh was that a big kind of change did they have to get a lot of stuff in and yeah so uh,
4: so when i started it was still uh they were still publishing other people's games and um You know, they were working on heroes. They were working on a few ports of heroes for the Mac and heroes one, I mean, uh, and and starting heroes Two. right after I was my primary focus was on a project called uh, Wages of War, which was a uh, tactical turn based strategy game in like XCOM or like Jagged Alliance kind of right, right in between those two, I think. And when that game shipped and when Heroes 2 shipped and uh, we were doing another game called uh, Spaceward Ho 4, which was another sort of strategy game that was, um, it was a space strategy game. Like the day after those shipped, uh, 3DO stepped in and laid off all of the testers, including me. They laid off all the producers. They laid off basically anything that was sort of a publisher job. Uh, cause so they said, well, we have all this stuff up in Redwood shores or Redwood city or wherever their home office was Redwood city, I think. And so they laid all of us off and, and I was out for about three months ish, two okay. three months. Uh, I remember planning to go back to school to get, to get my degree in music, but I had to wait for the next semester to start. Cause they laid me off right in between. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so Again, my car, (laughs) you know, my car broke down and I needed to, uh, I I needed the money again. And I just, out of the blue, I called, called Pete up the test manager. And I said, Hey, I need a job. (laughs) Okay. When can you start?
2: (laughs) Oh, wow. So it, it pretty much flipped from like a, a publishing studio to pure development.
4: Yep. Yeah. That when I got back, there was no, I actually, I thought I was coming back as a tester. And and he, Pete, sat me down in front of uh, a computer, not my old desk. I was very upset about that. <laughs> sat me down in front of a computer and gave me some sketches of like a, a building and mm. some other like little things, uh, some concept sketches, and showed me the Might and Magic 6 editor. And he says, okay, build these. See you later. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I guess I'm not a tester. <laughs> I'm I'm
3: suddenly a level designer.
4: (laughs) Exactly. Like there was no, there was no, we're bringing you back as a designer where it was just like, here you go. And, and so after that, there was no, there was an in-house published or in-house producer for each individual project. And, and that was it. Mm. Uh, In fact, we were, when the level designers were finished with the level design of the game, we turned into testers. So we were responsible for the testing. I mean, there was testing at 3DO, but, but uh, you know, no offense to those guys, but they sucked. <laughs> <laughs> so after that, they decided, you know, they wanted to keep us as level designers, but but things were ramping up between, you know, Might and Magic 6 and then Might and mm. Magic 7 and Heroes 3 and the Heroes 2 expansions. And, and so they decided they needed in-house testers as and the level designers couldn't do both jobs because we were yeah. busy on on Hero, Heroes Three or Might Magic Seven or whatever. Uh, so then they hired on testers in addition and stuffed us all into this one big room.
3: So we're we're going to take it back in a moment, but I'm dying yeah. to ask. So when you've yeah. gone back and suddenly you're a you know you're a you're a level designer, w- did were you terrified? How did that feel? Because of like if that happened to me. Yeah. I'd be like, what do I do? As soon as the doors close, that kind of like Homer Simpson moment of like, what do I do? Yeah. What do I do? Like, I'm, you know, I, I'm hoping, sure. I'm assuming, you know, you you had some sort of art ability. Like I'd be, I'd be done like myself. <laughs> um, what, what what was that? What was that like? What happened? Yeah.
4: Well, okay. So I'm, I'm in your camp. I have zero art ability. Like if you mm. asked me to draw something, it looks like a, a kindergartner did it. Yeah but with with uh three d designs i mm. I think i had a, a I wouldn't say I had a gift but i I had been working with sort of three d editors on my own in the past like i had the the uh, Wolfenstein editor and I was making levels with Wolfenstein there was okay. A- there was the Bard's Tale construction set that I'd, I'd played around with that. And that kind of introduced me to game scripting and coding. And, and so a lot of that, that in-between experience when, when I was, you know, a teenager and, and in my early twenties of just playing around with creative stuff for games gave me kind of this, this uh, step up. So, so I, I had a, well, you could say it a gift, but what, you know, it wasn't really a gift. It was just, previous experience that that I could have, I adapted well mm. to that that yeah. level design sort of thing and the editor was pretty easy to pick up uh, probably from my days of of playing pirated games without manuals it also be like well let's just push all the buttons and see what they do just see what happens and, yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 so I love and, that. and, and uh, Pete started us on easy stuff so that helped us kind of learn the editor oh, and that was good. and uh, things like that too I,
3: I was going to say were you nervous but I'm guessing you did have some support they did start you on easier stuff so that's pretty good
4: yeah and i didn't like like i i didn't really have time to be like i'm nervous about this because i'm going to be a level designer because i didn't know i Mm. just showed up and they're like here you go here you go
3: deep (laughs) end let's go
4: (laughs) i love that i love that um
3: so because we because we want to talk about it and we know some of the fans of the show will want to hear about it i'm going to take you back to a few years before when you were still a tester Um, Uh so so you mentioned you started with wages of war Uh uh-huh was that a unique title to kind of get your head around what was that experience like
4: it it's uh you know i kind of picked that game uh as a tester which you don't get to pick what game you're working on Mm. but you know i told i told my boss i really loved xcom and and so he's like oh perfect here you go on the turn-based strategy game and it it is. It was kind of a unique title in, like, you know, XCOM was very open worldy and and you know randomized combat and stuff like that. But, but Wages of War had very specific levels in in direct, like, you know, you finish this one, you go to that one, you go to that one, blah blah blah. blah. Hmm. And but in terms of like the gameplay and and the things you could do, there wasn't anything really uh, innovative about it. It was yeah, I like- think
2: just just the concept was a bit weird, wasn't it? That you're kind of, you know, hiring mercenaries against yeah, each yeah. other in in a kind of business management sim.
4: <laughs> is, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, it, pr- pretty it, odd. Yeah. It, I mean, the the business management part of it was it was kind of half assed. Honestly, it, it, there was nothing very sophisticated about it. It was, you know, you just. You just uh, you earn money from your mission and then uh, you spend that money on better equipment. And that was pretty much the extent of its depth. Uh, You know, I mean, you could pick cheaper guys and cheaper equipment and and stuff like that. But but there wasn't a lot like you didn't have to negotiate contracts, really, that I remember. You didn't have to worry about other people stealing your bids or anything like that. So it was it was very much just, uh, you know, earn money uh, for the better loadout for the next mission.
2: Well, when you did get onto Might & Magic, it was uh, Might & Magic 6. Yeah. And um, one of the features that um, I actually saw, one of the glitches, was like um, a level of basically the office and Uh new world computing, and it had a a Trip Hawkins in in the office, and you could go in. Uh,
4: Where did that come from? Uh, So that was my level. And uh, Pete, the the test manager slash, I think he might have been promoted to – assistant producer or something like that uh, by then he came in to me and he's like, Hey, uh, I want you to build the office as a secret level and then fill it with all the employees and Trip Hawkins. <laughs> <laughs> and and I said, all right. And it's funny because you can see between like, it, it became a thing for all three of those might and magic, uh, you know, six, seven, and eight. And you can see a distinct difference. If you look at the, the top down maps between the, might and Magic six version, and then the Might and Magic seven and eight version, because uh, I got a lot better as a level designer <laughs> in that time. So I was able to more accurately create the layout of the office, and I think I actually got a uh, a blueprint or something that I could use as as a, a guide to build it. And then, you know, I didn't work directly on Might and Magic eight, but the if you look at the the sketch or the the map out of like the strategy guide or something it's the exact same level so uh you know they didn't want to redo the work and they just so they just threw in the the old one which is fine you know i would have done the same thing
2: <laughs> well um i i know that the tools um uh, i guess you guys were using 3d studio max for it or
4: uh, uh so they- for uh, there was 3d studio max for a lot of the stuff on the on the art side of the house so the The characters, the sprites—they were actually sprites. They were done in 3D Studio Max. The the level design was done in a proprietary program called MCAD. Okay. And um, you know, I think a few of the the more sophisticated levels, the um, Tomb of Arn and and uh, those really big ones, those were done in Lightwave. Um, so we didn't do a lot of 3DS Max. I don't even think I learned 3DS Max until I started at EA.
2: I just remember people massively pirating 3 d Studio Max. Oh, yeah. Time. That was, yeah. I, I was wondering what you thought of like the Lift Tech engine as well and what it was like to work with that because um, I, I always loved the yeah. games and the aesthetic of that engine.
4: So the the engine itself was great depending on what you used it for. So for games like like um, Shogo, Mobile Armor Division, and and Nolf and uh, Tron, like first person shooters like that, it was great. I mean, Nolf is probably one of the best uh, games to come out of of the late '90s, early 2000s. Um, and it, you know, it's great lithic for an RPG, uh, and if you talk about Legends of Might and Magic uh, for a uh, multiplayer game, it just didn't it wasn't that good, you know, Mm. uh, particularly with, with the, the multiplayer aspects, it had a lot of issues with, with the networking. They couldn't have people in, they call, I think they called them rooms, which was basically just a, you know, a logical container for all the players to be in. Uh, and they couldn't have the same party in different, uh, rooms like network rooms, Uh, In the games and that really defeated the the original concept of Legends of Might and Magic. And it turned so they had to make it basically fantasy counter strike Uh, for the RPGs. There was a lot of, you know, it was a lot better suited for that, but not for the kind of open world sort of RPGs that that Might and Magic was known for. You know, like you look at six, particularly Might and Magic six, where you can just you can walk from one end of the game all the way to the other. In you know, mm. bags, mm. very it was mm. very preliminary sort of open world. Uh, even though it had like little level breaks and stuff, but they were huge open worlds as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> and, and if you go yeah. to uh, it, it, if you look at Might and Magic Nine, it's it, it wasn't like that at all. You know, we did our best, but we had the you know all the outdoor areas were very small, sort of tunnel kind of designs that led you from. You know, one uh, from the, the little town to the load spot for the next town or or an area for a quest or a dungeon. Uh, so there wasn't as, as much exploration just because of the nature of the engine and, and its draw distances and stuff like that.
3: Was there much else you had to consider, you know, when designing the levels and the worlds? And, you know, did it make a difference if, you know, with it being an RPG turn-based or with it
4: being real-time combat? Well, I was a I was the lead designer on Might Magic mm. 9. So I didn't have a lot of level design input. I mean, <clears> I had the final approvals okay for stuff, but but I don't remember any sort of thoughts be- between any of the games on uh, should we do this focus on real-time combat for this particular level or focus on turn-based? We never did that. And, and we just like, you know, does the level look good? Okay, awesome we're done
3: yeah yeah <laughs> fair enough um so the games featured a lot of digitized faces whose are they did you make it into it i did
4: Brilliant. <laughs> so so my magic six they were there was two types of faces the first was like all the main characters were were basically all the employees mm. so the art department or the producer or something sent out an email one day and said, hey, tomorrow we're going to be taking pictures of anybody who wants to be in the game. So if you have a medieval costume, Renaissance fair garb <laughs> or anything like that, come on in with it and take your picture. Mm. And I happened to have Renaissance fair garb. Oh, wow. And, and uh, I was the only one of the group that had chainmail armor. Mm. So I wore my chainmail shirt and I had a chainmail hat. And they uh, they made me Woodrow the armor smith. Brilliant, <laughs> um, and then but everybody else that, that you see in the um, the council, those are all employees. Uh, some of the other shopkeepers and and stuff were also employees. All the other faces, well the um, the the character portraits of the player characters those were also npc or also uh some employees mm-hmm. but then all the npcs and random characters that you meet those came from a cd of faces
3: oh wow yeah. just just like yeah ones you could use for free
4: yeah and i don't know i don't know where they got it they just had this cd that had thousands of faces and just copyright in free yeah. yeah
3: yeah brilliant so these people might not even know that they're in the Might and Magic games.
4: Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and it's, it one you know, day. it's probably yeah. like, you know, somebody went around to Renaissance fairs and, hey, let me take your picture. And, hey, let me take your picture. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, they probably have no idea until they played the game.
2: Hey, that's Yeah, imagine you just playing it. It's like, is that me? <laughs> that's brilliant. Well, I was I was wondering what, you know, the Might and Magic games never took themselves that seriously. I was wondering yeah. what the kind of... Uh, Star Trek connection was to the game.
4: That's the Star Trek thing started with, uh, John Van Kanagam. He, uh, he was, you know, a big fan of Star Trek. Uh, basically everybody he hired was a big fan of Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I don't think that was planned. Cause I don't remember a Star Trek question in my interview, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And, and he started throwing with like making Varn a spaceship and having nacelles and, when he passed sort of the design torch on to the rest of us, uh, throughout the different games, we just took that and went with it. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. yeah.
3: So obviously the Martin magic games were huge, you know, for what, almost 20 years, absolutely massive. But was it hard to balance the grinding of the game and then the replayability? Um, cause obviously they are, they're quite heavy RPGs, although they're, uh-huh. you know, they're quite fun and tongue in cheek as we've discussed. Was that balance tough, or did it come quite naturally?
4: Uh, I would say it came pretty naturally. Um, I mean, by the time I was I was doing the the game balancing on on Magic Nine, all this all that stuff had already been worked out by mm. the previous games. So you know, I just kind of followed the formulas and rode with it. The guys who did it, I don't remember any any conversations or complaints about game balance or money or Anything like that. I do remember writing up a a bug that it was impossible to beat the game with an all warrior party Mm. or all night. So I started a party of all nights and and I didn't want to use magic. And and I said, well, I can't finish the game. That's a bug. And and they told me to piss off (laughs) too bad. You got to have a magic user in this game.
2: It was, it was also really long as well, wasn't it? Yeah,
4: like just, yeah. Just
2: doing a playthrough could be weeks and weeks and weeks.
4: And, you know, th- as a designer at the time making those levels, I didn't think those levels were particularly long. You know, I was playing Half-Life or, or Fallout or, you know, Quake and those games. And those levels were huge. And, and I remember feeling kind of inadequate as a designer when I compared my work to their work uh you know saying like god their levels are so big and they look so good and you know this one looks like crap <laughs> and it's short and it's you know but i you know it worked out because the, the game was still 60 70 80 hours to finish depending on on how fast you're uh you wanted yeah, to get and try
2: to trying to get to those high levels as well yeah um like Might and magic 7 I added that like aspect of um you know, morality and like uh-huh. uh, good versus evil. Um, what did you think of that aspect when it came in?
4: I, I thought it was great. You know, that's, that was, it was cool being a, a designer for that because I made both Celeste, which was the the good town. And I made, uh, I can't even remember the name, the evil town. I made both those towns. So it was cool to be able to, to do sort of the, the good and dark side of, you know, like the, the good town is is beautiful and pretty and awesome, and the you know, then the evil town is uh, you know, dark and dirty, and, mm. and and so that was cool, and it was cool as a player because like you know you're saying about replayability, it, now you gotta you gotta play it twice to get both endings, yeah, and uh, I mean it, it, what it ended up is making it a shorter game, which at the time people kind of complained about, but. <laughs> You know, we had to say, look, we made the same amount of levels.
3: <laughs> yeah, it, it's tough because it's like, okay, it's a shorter game, but you essentially built in more than one campaign. It, it gives it that yeah. massive replayability, you know. For, yeah. for me, I'm, I'm a have-to-see-everything type of person. Yeah, me too. So I would have to, that would mean I'd have to replay the game, whereas I have friends and, you know, co-workers and stuff who would, once they've done a game even if it's just one campaign or from one point of view that's it they're done with it they move on to the next game because they've got to see everything so i guess it's hard to find that balance
4: yeah yeah and it's uh you know obviously we would want two games of of the same length as might magic six but Mm. you know when you're a professional you got time constraints and you got to cut yeah someplace
3: yeah absolutely and was it hard deciding on spells and new features in the game? I mean, we've just discussed one
4: of the new features there. Sometimes. Mm. Uh like, you know, when I was I didn't do any of the spells or or any of that for Might and Magic 6 and 7, but but I did on 9. Mm. <laughs> you know, that was uh, and uh I kind of I had to farm out the spell list to uh to the uh god Kate, what was her title? She was my assistant designer, but that wasn't her title. She was sort of an assistant producer. She, everybody wore multiple hats. I think she was mm-hmm. actually an asset coordinator, but she sat next to me, so <laughs> I gave her lots of work. So she did the spells, and but I do remember having to to consider all sorts of, you know, there are time constraints. How long do we have have to get these features in? Uh, what's the what's the difficulty? What's the you know how much fun is it going to be versus how much effort it's going to take. And so, like, spells, though we had to be very cautious on on how many spells were in the game. And then, you know, that applied to other things too, like, one of the first things cut out of Might and Magic 9 was the paper doll, where you could dress up your character in, in their equipment. And the the grid-based inventory system, you know, we just went with a simple list and a, and a couple slots for you to equip your... And and, uh, you know, people hated that. They were very upset that they, they couldn't see their character dressed up in all their equipment anymore. And it's like, well, that, you know, that takes a lot of work. And we just we just didn't have the time to create those re- those assets and and code the all the making sure all the assets get in the right place at the right time. And, and so you are like, well, that's we got to cut it. And it, we knew we knew it was going to suck. We knew they were we were going to get dinged for it. But, you know, we had we had to get it out the door
2: it was it was interesting with 9 because like after after 6 um you know the, the digitization had gone out and it had kind of the graphics had changed a bit uh-huh. to um you know CGI and then 9 it was a completely new engine um yeah. what what was the kind of approach there and um uh, what, what was the reaction like to 9 Well,
4: we knew we knew like we basically switched from from sprites to full 3D models and we knew that we weren't going to ha- be able to have as many characters on screen, as many enemies on screen as we had in the previous games and that was something that people really enjoyed was fighting these hordes and hordes of monsters. And so we we had to set some pretty aggressive polygon limits for all these monsters and it made for really ugly monsters. Like if you look at, you know, Might and Magic 6 today, it it has this sort of charm to it now. But you look at might Med, or might magic 9 and uh, along with a lot of those other early fully 3D games and they they're still ugly
2: <laughs> you know yeah. like
4: you compare them to today's 3D standards and it's just like man this guy's face is two polygons
2: <laughs> that that jump to 3D was really tough for a lot of people yeah. and a lot of companies you know especially on the PC and stuff um, yeah really yeah really and- really uh, a change going from kind of Sprites, like you said, to that exact yeah. rendered and everything look, but without that realism.
4: Yeah, and we, I uh, like, we had to do it. If we would have gone with, with sprite characters in a fully 3D engine, then you know people would have hated that. <laughs> if mm. We go with with 3D characters; they're going to be ugly. So, so after Might and Magic,
3: you know, we're around 2002 now. You moved yeah. to the Medal of Honor team, so yeah. you've gone from RPG to FPS. Uh-huh. Um, that must have been an interesting change for you. And what was it like joining the Medal of Honor team?
4: So it was it was a kind of the the equivalent of leaving high school and going to college. Mm. <laughs> and and I don't I don't mean like I'm not trying to slight New World Computing because that was my favorite job ever. Mm. But um, there was a there was sort of a step up in the the professionalism or the kind of money spent. Yeah. In, on their projects and there was a huge step up in the amount of alcohol that we had to consume (laughs) because the, the design teams were, you know, we were a bunch of young guys in, in our uh, late twenties or early thirties. And we all still wanted to go out and party and, Mm. and uh, you know, we had the money to do it. And so we did it. (laughs) Um, But in terms of like, as a designer, there was, because i'd been a designer on a 3d game the design like the the concepts really translated well if i had jumped from like say might and magic to command and conquer hmm. then i think i would have i would have struggled a lot more than yeah. than going into a first person shooter yeah. uh, there was there was a little bit of of i guess easierness is that a word <laughs> yeah <laughs> because the levels were in a you know, they were a, uh, um, linear in a linear fashion. We didn't mm. have to worry about, uh, you know, how strong the player was going to be at the, at this particular junction. We knew that they were going to be X strength. You know, they would have X weapons, uh, in this level. So we could, we could balance it a lot easier.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
4: Um, and then there was a, a lot of design processes that, that had to be relearned, um, mm. at the time, you know, uh, EALA was used to be uh, DreamWorks Interactive, mm-hmm. and it was a Steven uh, Spielberg sort of invention, and and so there was a lot of sort of crossover between the film industry and the game industry, and and a lot of the the film people who had moved into the games were trying to apply the same sort of processes from from making a film into making yeah. a game, yeah. And it was our job as, as designers to, to see this um, kind of bullshit <laughs> that we, <laughs> we kind of looked at it as at the time and, and apply that as, as a uh, useful information to making a game. Yeah. And, you know, like, like if you're writing a movie, you focus on things like beats and big moments and, and uh, character development that you're not necessarily as interested in as it, for a game. And, but we did take take good things like okay we want a big set piece here in the game uh so let's kind of draw step by step how you get there and yeah but it was a definite definite adjustment for me Mm. Uh, i was used to sort of uh a a lead game designer coming into my room saying okay the level is called this it's called rivendale and it's over a river uh yeah go build it (laughs) (laughs) you know whereas at ea we had a full design document and we had we had very specific beats particularly making a history game Mm. uh, because basically all the levels came from real historical events yeah we had to follow the history uh which wasn't something we had to do it might on might magics
3: yeah yeah so obviously moving into medal of honor you know you kind of mentioned a lot more drinking there sounded like Mm a kind of different atmosphere a little bit as well do you think because by this point medal of honor is kind of like i think maybe on its third game when it kind, mm-hmm. of, kind of came to the PS2, it might have been its fourth. And do you think there was a lot of pressure there from EA for it to be a big title? Because all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's next gen, it's it's PlayStation oh, yeah. 2, it's Xbox. W- was that quite stressful? Or did you, it sounded like maybe you just kind of got on with things?
4: So um, in, in a single word, yes. There were yeah. big expectations for for uh, uh, Rising Sun and Pacific mm. Assault. Uh, because Medal of Honor was just coming off of Allied Assault, which, uh, if you ask me, is still the best game in the series. It just mm. it was it was a masterpiece and it was a huge success commercially. And so they they came to us and said, you know, we're making the, the new Medal of Honor. It's going to be in the Pacific Theater. And they expected it to outsell the best selling game of the previous year. And that was like just like straight from the get go. We're gonna sell six million copies of this game, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it better be good. And so there were there were a lot of late nights. Um, I think that on Medal of Honor, I did a year and a half of eighty hour weeks. Oh wow! Um, without a break, uh, just mm. like I had never had that much that much overtime, unpaid overtime. I never had mm. worked that hard. Basically, ever so, and you know, the drinking was. I think part of that was a, a coping mechanism for, mm. for basically being, um, you know, uh, deployed, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because we are all away from our families, we are away from our friends, we are away, f- away from basically everything. Was the job? Yeah. And
2: so you kind of felt like you were at war anyway. Yeah, yeah. And
4: yeah. I mean, you know, uh, I don't want to get get close to kind of presuming that we knew what it was like but it was it was kind of similar circumstances in in terms of our home lives like that
2: kind of isolation yeah um yeah i I was looking at frontline and the soundtrack is just absolutely amazing Uh with that kind of orchestral score and stuff um there were loads of other elements as well what 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 do you think really made the atmosphere of the game amazing
4: um with with frontline yeah it's uh you know it's and not
2: d day landing
4: as well <laughs> d day uh, yeah. i mean d day in frontline is is great but it's to me it still doesn't hold a candle to the allied assault d day mm. there's just something about i think because it's on a pc it, or at the time the pcs were more powerful than the playstation so you could do more but uh, to me it comes down to to the level design and the set pieces so, you know, the, the set pieces were different parts of each level. There had to be very specific things that we wanted to do. So like in the D-Day, obviously the set piece is D-Day, is that getting off the beach and and onto the, or getting off the, the LVT onto the beach and having everybody shoot at you, very Saving Private Ryan kind of moment. Normandy um, landings. Yeah, kind of, yeah. yeah. And, and I think that was... That was a real important part of the atmosphere, um, along with the, the the pacing. The pacing of all the the Medal of Honor games is always really good. You know, you had these big action moments, but then you had kind of paced moments where you're just kind of walking down a hallway, waiting for something to shoot or, or something like that. There wasn't really a lot of puzzle solving in it, but that really, I think that was a big reason for its success.
3: Yeah, it was a good balance with it, and it was one of the first games I ever saw on PS2 and mm-hmm. I remember it it felt real like you know it was like oh my god you know I, I was quite young at the time I would, would have been a, a young teenager and I remember like like you say it kind of had that that saving private ryan feel to it and stuff and that first level was, was it was it was so grand but then the rest of the game was so immersive as well yeah so yeah. you know you, you had the civilians in there and it, as you said, very, it was real world set pieces and stuff. I guess the aim, I guess there was an aim to not make light of the war.
4: Yeah, that was, it was very, uh, it was impressed upon us very strictly that, you know, we had, we had um, Dale Dye, who was our military advisor, and he was also the military advisor for Saving Private Ryan. And, and he was a Marine, like in capital letters. <laughs> and he was, you know, he was very serious about, about the respect that we had to have for, for the soldiers and the things that they did and, and stuff like that. Not that we would have made light of it anyway, but uh, yeah, he (laughs) is very serious about stuff like that. Like if we were, we didn't have even I I don't even think we had anything approved that would have been, been silly or, or, referential to other forms of media or something Mm. like that like we like we would have on might and magics you know yeah yeah
2: i i I remember playing uh medal of honor rising sun and Mm -hmm. that that intro yeah um uh pearl harbor where it's all completely calm and then suddenly it just blows up and it's it's really chucks you into the action that that's one of the kind of great moments that i had when gaming um what was the whole kind of idea was it just to you know, get people going, but also, you know, celebrate that. Well, not celebrate it, but also, you know, refer to that point of history and how yeah. how much of a surprise attack it was and kind of impactful.
4: Well, it was, it was, Um, it, it, we kind of had to top the Normandy invasion and in Allied Assault. There was, you know, we had to have something that was as big. And that was, that was the first, first key. It's got to be great. Um, The the second key was that it had to be accurately portrayed as to what really happened. Um, You know, the first thing that that all of us designers did when we first started was was we got a stack of books we had to read, Uh, you know, Mm -hmm. Band of Brothers and and uh, uh, the Iwo Jima books, the Flags of Our Fathers and and all like just everything, all these books. I'd never read so many World War II books (laughs) And the funny thing is that that the majority of the ones that we read were were still uh, European theater stuff. I mean, we did read like Ghost Soldiers. That was that was my level, um, and uh, we read uh, um, a lot of the Pacific theater stuff after that. And so we we almost became before I even got a computer. I read probably sixteen books, <laughs> <laughs> and and so we all kind of became little tiny experts of of world war Two, uh at the time
2: i think um you know pearl harbor in american culture it's uh obviously it's very well known but in in the uk um you know we focus on like kind of our side of the war and yeah. seeing that from that aspect was uh, absolutely amazing and also you know just the ships collapsing in there and having to yeah. try and navigate around the chaos um it was a a, a real kind of um as you mentioned spielberg earlier is a real set piece kind of um film
4: yeah and you know i think I, uh, if i could kind of toot our own horn a little bit i th- actually think that the pearl harbor scene in in uh both in rising sun and pacific assault was better than the pearl harbor movie Just <laughs> yeah
2: yeah i think i think it's one of the greatest <laughs> scenes I've, I've played in in a video game you know so how important was the accuracy
3: of the weapons? You know, we've, we've nailed the feel of the game, uh-huh. you know, the kind of like the history of the game and stuff. The actual gameplay itself, the feel of the weapons, the accuracy of them, you know, the equipment you're using. How important was that?
4: Uh, so it was, it was really important, but it did kind of take a backseat to the gameplay. Mm. So like we had to use historically accurate weapons. You know, we had to use stuff that they, that soldiers would have had at the time, but we didn't necessarily have to represent those weapons precisely how it would have been actually used. So like in one of the levels, we had a, we had a tank buster gun. There's a, a player walking around with this 50 pound rifle <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know, and, and like, no way, no way that's not going to happen, you know? Uh, but it, it made for good gameplay. So it, it had to take a backseat. Uh, one place where accuracy was was uh, supremely important was in the AI and both the, the AI of the enemies and the AI of any followers that that the player had. So we actually had to take a, a, a few classes in in a World War Two military strategy, both from the uh, Marines point of view. So the Marine strategies and from the Japanese strategies and it was it was all taught by Dale Dye, <laughs> you know, our military advisor, and he showed us all the different tactics that that the Marines used, different tactics that the Japanese used. And then our, our culmination of all of this, we all had to had to, it was terrible. We had to take a day off of work and go to a paintball field. <laughs> <laughs> and and he divided us up into different squads and different mm. uh, battalions, and then you know, he said, OK, in this scenario, you guys are the Japanese and you guys are the Marines and you have to use those specific tactics that you were taught and fight each other.
2: I, f- I and- think like elements like the kamikaze and stuff were um, uh, pretty like when you're playing, you're like really shocked by it. You yeah. Know,
4: and, and, you know, it's ha- how impactful it is. It's it. That's one thing that we really like it really ingrained in us. Um, like I was always a Marine in our paintball experience, but so I faced down a bunch of kamikazes and, you know, there was a lot of like laughing and fun about it, but the one thing that we really impressed is, or what was impressed on us when, when you're sitting there experiencing it, when, you know, there's paintballs flying by your head, but they still, you know, you still hear, you know, the, the whizzing by. So there's, there's a bit of like, Oh, keep your head down. And, and it really showed us how, um, both how, um, scary that is and how just utterly futile it was for the Japanese. Cause you know, we had, you know, one, the, the one rule of, of the Japanese soldiers was uh, in lieu of other orders attack. And yeah. so if their commander got killed, they would bonsai and we shot their commander and they bonsai and, and, and that's
2: it, in a Pacific assault, isn't it? Yeah.
4: Um, yeah. That, like, they have that. Yeah. Uh huh. And and in this particular in the paintball instances, they all ran and and uh, and all got mowed down, and we didn't have any casualties. <laughs> uh, and but another interesting thing about that is there was a particular point where my squad was was kind of they were pinned down, and at the time I was a big paintball guy, and I was sick of just sitting still. So so you know uh, you could look at it as our commander was in. Uh, was afraid and wasn't doing his job, and and so I said, you know what, f this, I'm gonna attack. <laughs> and so I, I yelled up at, at the guys in my squads, there, follow me, and I ran and I started charging down to the next uh, next set of uh, barricades or or uh, cover, and you know they all came with me and. It uh, it was getting ready. We're like we 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 move forward until there was only one more bunker between us and the enemy. And I wanted to get down there. I wanted to take those people out and get them at a crossfire and wipe them all out. And you know I wasn't in command, but I was given the orders. <laughs> 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 and and so I said, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna you know cover me. I'm gonna go up as soon as there's a little break in the in the fire, and and then we're we're gonna destroy them. And so I. I peeped my head up to look to, you know, to keep an eye on, on when it was okay to shoot. And I got shot right in the face, <laughs> Ooh. And, you know, I had a mask on. So, there, like yeah. it, it, you know, there was no problems there, but, but I had to leave. And after I went and, and these guys suddenly had nobody giving them orders, they just stayed there. And, and it eventually the, the, the exercise turned into a stalemate. <laughs> and, uh, Captain Die afterwards is like, you know, you had something really interesting developing on the left flank and then it just all stopped. And that's something that that would have happened in a real war. You know, if yeah. if a commander gets killed, suddenly nobody knows what to do. And on the on the American side, they always had a very specific, you know, if your commander gets killed, then you're in command. Kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Which is not something the Japanese had.
3: Yeah. They yeah. had disperse, run away kind of thing. Yeah. So. Wow. Okay. So, obviously, you know, Medal of Honor took quite a bit of a turn, you know, kind of towards the late two thousands, and uh, uh-huh. obviously with Call of Duty and stuff like that. But Call of Duty, obviously, it started in the early two thousands as well. Mm-hmm. Did, was that kind of having an effect on Medal of Honor at the time? You know, when you were working on them, or uh-huh. did you, did you pay any attention to what Call of Duty was doing?
4: Oh yeah, oh yeah, we uh, it it so Call of the 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 original team that that started Call of Duty. Uh, there were a company called Spark Entertainment, and they were all XEA employees. Like mm. most of those guys, did Frontline and Allied Assault. So mm. you know, they Activision basically hired them to come over to, oh, to wow. defect, yeah, to start Call of Duty. So oh, wow. you know, as as the the guys left standing and. And uh, I was hired on after that. So I didn't get as much of it, but there was a lot of let's bury them. Let's let's make this game so much better than their game kind mm-hmm. of thing. And yeah. but you know, we all we all played the first Call of Duty. We played it a lot. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and and we're like, Oh, they did this little, you know, mouse over the guy and it tells you his name kind of thing. That's really cool. And and you know, having separate AIs doing different things where like you know, you got a corpsman who's going to come and heal you if you get hurt. And that stuff was, you know, that a lot of that, a lot of those mechanics made their way into Medal of Honor after that.
2: I was wondering, like, is is there a time period or a kind of battle in history that you would have loved Medal of Honor to cover?
4: Yeah. So, I mean, the first would have been the the raid on Kabana Tuan, which was in the original design for for, uh, Rising Sun. And it's, it, they eventually made it into a movie called The Great Raid. Um, okay, and it's basically it was a prison camp, right? That uh, that was at the resu- from the result of the Bataan Death March. So the Battle of Bataan very early in the war. The the Americans and and I think there was some English soldiers there too. That they got uh, they lost basically and they surrendered. And the Japanese marched them halfway across the Philippines to to this uh, prison camp, and they spent the rest of the war there. And near the end of the war, right, basically as soon as MacArthur set foot on the Philippines, they sent soldiers to rescue them. And it's a very dramatic sort of sort of thing, and and I really wish that level would have made it into the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, alongside with that, I wish. It's a very sensitive topic, but I wish we would have done a, a level on like Auschwitz or Dachau or one of the, one of the um, prison camps or the concentration camps. Not because it, it's a particularly it would be a particularly fun or exciting level, but I think that 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 history, particularly with with World War II history, is is really important, and and I wish we would have shown like like the gravity of that.
2: Like the liberation and the kind yeah, of discovery. Yeah, and I mean, yeah.
4: it, as a designer, it would be very hard to frame that as a level with, you know, like having a, a satisfactory victory at the end where everybody can feel good when, you know, you're seeing the horrors of of the prison camp. But, you know, sometimes I don't think you need that. I think you really, and it's something that even today games shy away from is really – heavy topics like that where it's
2: that's that's why i love the medal of honor series because it was historically accurate but also it really added emotion to the games as well
4: yeah i blame the soundtrack for that man that's those soundtracks were always so (laughs) stunning yeah weepy and sweepy (laughs) so what we call it you know
2: before we finish i was just um wondering what you're up to nowadays uh
4: so now i've got a little indie company that's um, it's called Dungeon Bite Softworks, and I've been working on a sort of a, a, I guess you could call it a spiritual successor to Might and Magic. It's, uh, it's called Aelwyn's Legacy, and, uh, it's basically just another sort of blobber game is what they call them now. We didn't call it then, but a party-based role-playing game is set in the first person. Um, and we're still, we're, you know, we're in a, in a kind of a holding pattern while we're revamping our our sort of game engine game mechanics to be less bloated they were very kind of fat and bloated and and we're in the in the middle of that and we got some some good screenshots and and stuff but uh yeah it's i we don't have a release date yet but but it's it's fun to kind of revisit the the fantasy rpg genre again
2: well when it does come out let us know yeah we'll, for sure uh, give you a shout we sure. will get you on the show yeah you That'll can just go great. to
4: like if you want to see check it out or see any screenshots, you can go to dungeonbite.com and it's B-Y-T-E.
2: Awesome. Well, Tim, it's been an amazing interview. We've covered so much in this. <laughs> Thank yeah, sorry, you so much I can for talk.
4: I should have warned you. I I, I like to tell <laughs> stories.
2: Well, we love talkers.
4: <laughs> awesome. So, so Yeah, it. thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: The biggest international festival for the business of podcasting is back. The Podcast Show London will bring together thousands of podcast creators under one roof on the 22nd and 23rd of May. Also featuring major industry players, global brands and some of the most iconic voices in podcasting. Plus creator meetups, networking and an evening festival of unmissable live shows. passes from £89. Book yours now at thepodcastshowlondon.com.